My name is Anthony Fatsis and welcome to the What The Finance podcast, where we interview finance, trading, investing experts to help you understand current market trends and learn about the intricacies of new and existing assets. Hello and welcome What The Finance to another episode of the What The Finance podcast, where we talk to experts to help gain a greater understanding about what has happened in the world of finance, investing and markets. On today's podcast, I'm happy to welcome Alexander Campbell, who's the founder of Rose.ai and former global macro investor at Bridgewater and Lehman. So Alex, thanks for joining the podcast today. Oh, thanks very much for having me. You're welcome. So I guess my first question, you know, you talk a lot about China and I guess that's potentially due to your commodity past, but, you know, what really drew you into analyzing China? And I guess, why does it matter from your opinion? I think it started with being a data guy, actually, um, partially because it's so interesting and it's like existential question of like, can you trust the numbers? But then you can trust when, when you're in commodities, you can trust like seeing the demand and where it's going. And so that was kind of what led me to look at the financial system because you look at, okay, how are these companies financing all this commodity consumption and production? Um, and, and as you go and look at different, you know, production systems or cost curves or whatever you want to call it, you find, you know, in a lot of cases, a ton of capacity that was looked uneconomic. Um, and so that was kind of how I got onto the banks. I was a banks guy at Lehman and I did some banks and financials work, you know, in, in pure global macro, but it was kind of the synthesis of those two areas where, you know, if you just look at the banks, you go, okay, these mortgages are going out there and these corporate loans are going out there. You don't really know they're going. If you're just looking at commodities, you're saying like, oh, they, they, they consume a lot of commodities. But I, I just think because I was at the nexus of both of those things, banks and commodities, I would go, okay, well, how are they paying for the commodities? Wait, does any of this make sense? And then that leads you to like the money supply numbers and the, you know, WMPs and all that stuff. And, and it was just, you know, seeing a chart of US money supply versus Chinese money supply and just saying, oh, wait, you're telling me there's twice as much money in China right now on today's exchange rate. And being like, you know, I, I think that that would make sense in like maybe 50 years or 100 years for sure. But right now, what that meant to me was that they were much more on the Japan track than most people thought. That meant tons of debt. That meant tons of deflation and, you know, kind of flat income growth for a long time afterwards. Or else, and so that was kind of the the trade off that I thought was very interesting as a as an investor, and, and also as like a data person, because then you, you you break out your tools and your approach, and you say, okay, can I figure that out? How would I go learn about that? Yeah, it's really interesting, and I guess um, sort of as you mentioned there, it's very similar to Japan. I guess what we saw in the seventies and eighties. So. I've heard you talk about this before, but do you see it becoming the next Japan, where you know there's a massive crash? I guess in the late 80s massive real estate crash as well as asset bubble crash and then from there we've just seen, seen probably deflation for the past 30 years well, most of the bullish narratives aside from just runaway six percent income growth that has nothing to do with property which is kind of a ha-ha now but most of the bullish narratives on what's happening in the chinese debt system are that it will look like japan that it will eventually follow that path and the the, the thing that doesn't hold up to scrutiny there to me is one, Japan had an open capital account for about 10, I think like 20 years before they raised interest rates and popped the bubble. And that meant that there was 20 years, 10 years of wealth that had left the country that came home, that, that, that you know, the, the yen goes up on the deleveraging in that scenario. Whereas in China, you've had a closed capital account, closed capital account. And, to, and when you have pain in the banks and pain in the system, the money leaves because the balance of pressure is to go out as opposed to come in. And to me, that's a very different scenario. Um, 
and maybe why it feels more existential for them not to prick the bubble. Uh, I don't know. I think there's also like a way more explicit <clears throat> deal between the people and the government, at least under my, you know, whatever fo foggy view of like 5%, 6% used to be 8%, you know, GDP growth or whatever. Um, and when you take away that deal, it just changes. And the way that people were monetizing that deal, the way that they felt that that benefit was property, was wealth, was in the stock market. And so when you, if you really say, okay, now imagine what happens if you take all those Evergrande lots, not even the ones that aren't finished, the ones that just got bought as speculative, mark them down by like a third, 50%. There's a lot of people who are, you know, that they're not that happy. And so I think that combined with the COVID stuff was why we saw the, the turnaround in policy actually, which is good, good for the world. You know, it sucks that people are getting sick, obviously, but it's good for the world that there is some responsiveness to what people want and people need. And I think it was a combination of property and the COVID thing that was like, look, you can't have both. You can't prick the property bubble and lock everyone down and do a you know crackdown on the protesters explicitly because you just, you're, you've broken that old deal about, you know, you're gonna get rich in exchange for not being able to tweet or whatever. And so now they're trying to readjust that those that deal. I don't know how that deal is going to go down. That's their decision, not mine. But I'm just I like watching it and tracking it and trying to understand it. Yeah, it's super interesting. So if we go back a step and look at you know you mentioned like looking at data that com comes out from China, I guess there's concern that maybe it's not as trustworthy or maybe the numbers are you know ma massage. What what's your opinion on that from analyzing it for this period of time? Yeah, so I am so interested in this question, I started a company to try to help people find data, look at it, see it, buy it, you know, robots to help you do all this stuff, generative AI, woo, you know, like that whole thread. Because there's a truth that I think I saw a little bit from working in these different financial institutions and then working at Bridgewater, which I think is like the best data people in the world probably, is that there's no such thing as pure truth. It's like, there's like, PCE CPI and then sorry, PCE inflation and there's CPI inflation and there's urban and there's X food and X energy and X clothes and X, you know, the VAT tax in the UK and the Japan, you know, income rebate or whatever. And you start getting into the details and you realize that it's all just humans trying to understand how these machines work and is it going up and is it going down and how fast and how does that compare to history? And should I care or whatever? And, you know, so I think about it as like asymptotically approaching truth, which is such a cheesy way to think about it. But it's like, there's no such thing as truth, but you can get closer and closer and closer through lots of different points of feedback and information. And maybe US inflation numbers aren't as accurate as they could be because we're doing owner adjusted rent wrong or whatever, but they're 80% closer to truth. you know. And maybe the Chinese fixed asset investment provincial stats are 40% correlated to truth. It means that you have to just know that when you're looking at it and then adjust your confidence and your how you do math about that stuff in a weird way. Because you say, wait a sec, like use it, but don't trust it so much, but then understand how it breaks. And it's it's funny because like one of the best signals that, that happened in the world was super simple in COVID, which was the Chinese PMIs just got destroyed in like February 2020 or whatever, because they were locking everything down and they were locking everything down before everybody else had, even knew it was a problem. And it was like, you got this, you know, they had these super managed PMIs. It was like, I don't know the numbers, like 55, 56, 56, 60, 68, you know, like 57. And then it was like 35. And it was like so bad that you had to be like, whoa, what's going on? Right. And like, that was in a funny way. Uh, and I'll just finish this ramble at this point, but like a, a, a preview of what was going to happen with oil two months later, 
right? Because how many people in their spreadsheets had oil ever going negative? Nobody. Nobody ever had oil going negative. And then you go, oh, second month future, third month future, six month future, what's the price of oil? You do a PhD thesis on that, but there's no price of oil, right? There's just a bunch of different futures. And some of them in April went negative and a bunch of people got their faces ripped off because they didn't think that could happen. And now what do you put in for the price of oil in April, 2020? Like you have to go make a decision and there's no perfect decision. Someone's going to put it at zero. Someone's going to use the negative. Someone's going to say, oh, I, I look at the third month future. And as soon as you acknowledge that there's different kinds of truths and different lenses on truth, it becomes an accounting game, really, where it's just, okay, go find all the different measures of truth, test them, aggregate them, look at them. And then you can look at something like China and still read it, but not get fooled into thinking that you know more than you do. What are the key, I guess, indicators that you're watching in terms of where you see, because I guess we're seeing the China opening up now, are you seeing sort of any impact in the data currently, or is it too early? Yeah, I'm I'm pretty open on Twitter about this, so I'll just make sure my numbers are right here. But I had two two indicators for what was going on in lockdown that I think are still good. And one is this ETF of Chinese property bonds. And these are dollar property bonds. But these are companies that have all now clearly gone under or distressed. So the whole sector is basically trading totally distressed. And you can track like are the bonds going from 8 to 20 to 25 to 40. And they're all these like really low numbers. And the ETF went from like trading in Hong Kong, 3001 HK. It went from like 350 to like 70, down like 70%, 80%. This is a basket of bonds, okay? Like bonds are not supposed to do this. And I said, look, when that thing's above 100 and the price of iron in Qingdao province, I probably said it wrong, but you know, it's iron or 62 fines or whatever. When that's above 100, that's when you know they're not crushing property anymore. And so we're back past those two numbers. They're both past 100. And, you know, I think there's really now we're seeing the, the, the policy around people being able to move around, transportation, consumption has all been relaxed. Everyone got sick. So they're still dealing with the sickness. And then there's a huge question about how much inflationary consumption and investment demand there's on the other side of that and how long it'll take to get there. Is it one month? Is it two months? Is it six months? But you have to be kind of thinking about inflation, at least from China, in the second half of next year, for sure, and probably in the first half. And then the question is just how much tightening we're getting. How does the curve look? And you know, the Fed is kind of pricing in perfection right now where it's going to tighten, 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 and then get to ease out as the economy runs off all this inflation. And if China really has stimulation on top of the demand that you can have when people aren't just being locked in their homes or whatever, that could be really inflationary in a way that then makes it hard for people to price in these Goldilocks interest rates. And that's what's driving, to me, the biggest thing. So it's, it's actually pretty simple. People ask you for indicators, just look at the bond yield, just look at TLT, look at what's going on with bonds. And when bonds are going down, it's scary. It's not good, especially if you're in tech, any, real estate, anything with a duration, which is everything right now, um, you know, rates is the key driver. Yeah. And obviously China as well, they've uh, sort of, they are sort of pegged to, to the US dollar. So that means as the US dollar, as they continue to tighten, and that's going to have a big impact on China. Oh, definitely. I mean, I think that's, <clears throat> I think that's part of the reason why their property companies are in such pain because the US started to tighten and there's this quasi peg going on and everybody you know, it's a managed peg and there's this like target and all, it's peg, right? And if the we got to the point with the dollar, I think it was like a month ago where right before the big turnaround, like if you imagine another 20, 30% of dollar strength to peg against the dollar, that's 20%, 30% appreciation in the middle of this big lockdown, you know, property crackdown, crackdown. That's a lot, that's gonna impose pain. And I think the reason that they shifted 
it's kind of to protect the numbers in a weird way. This is so conspiratorial, but it's like, look, if we like change the machine right now and like, and like we acknowledge that there's like this COVID thing and we like remove the pieces, then as we like inflate it again, you know, it won't be clear like how much we just like didn't get what we thought we were going to get or whatever in terms of property, in terms of investment, in terms of asset write downs. And I think mostly in terms of banks, right? Because it's really, really simple historically the banking system is the leading indicator for a financial crisis. So you would expect the banks to have come under stress and they were, they were coming, a lot of them were coming under stress in April and sorry, in August and September. And you had this like crazy phenomenon where people were going to protest their local bank and their like COVID health app was saying like, now you got to go to quarantine, which is like so dystopian and crazy. Like no one wants to talk about it or whatever. I'll probably get you know yelled at just for talking about this. But like, to me, that's a thing that when you see the confluence of those two things, you're like, wait a second, like how much is this like institutional state apparatus protecting a banking system that they that they're worried about like the bottom falling out of because of these because of the fact that everyone levered up on property that's not worth as much as they thought it was. It's pretty simple. Um that'll take time. That could take like the, the Japan plan is to make that take five years. And maybe they get out of it because there's real income growth and extend and pretend. And when the US tightens and the dollar goes up, that's the thing that makes them really have to choose because they can't extend and pretend and keep the dollar peg and keep the property companies going and do the, and do that. It's just too many things. And eventually you say, okay, we have to break that dollar peg. If you really want that, maybe that'll even be good for China in the long run. That's why I say gold in China is like the best way to play that. Cause you just buy gold, hedge out the dollar, you know, short RMB and just say, okay, I don't know where that wall of money is going, but eventually it'll end up in gold. Yeah. Is that what Japan did sort of in the, during that period as well? Cause they have quite a, I guess, it wasn't devalued, but it was a, it was low compared to the US to what you see today. So they were almost like uh, sort of de- deflating the value of their currency. Do you think that would happen for China as well? Because they're sort of doing that now, and then if they just actually let it get to the proper strength that it should be. Well, it's a question as to strength versus depreciation. It's like the you know the economy, the exports would suggest that you would want a higher currency, but if you actually let that currency float a lot of the money would leave and the currency would fall. And so that's this like perpetual narrative that like is really hard to think about for me, at least I think Japan, like I said, had the outflows that then came back to support the currency. They also plaza accords, right? This is something that China is not going to do and didn't do where the, the, the currency was getting so strong. They had a meeting with the U S and basically managed it lower. And I think that that's the difference. That's, that's what leads me to think about conflict a little bit because, you know, Japan essentially played ball and got 20 years of deflation, China's saying like, we're not going to play ball. And like, why? And like, is that because that there's like more conflict on the line? So like, why do you, why would you negotiate this stuff that you know you're going to fight about in like five years, 10 years, 15 years anyway? So do you think that's the way out? So I guess, yeah, as you said, that China sees itself, I guess, as a world power and they might not be happy to do what Japan did. And I guess just slowly go, go sideways over the last 20 years. So do you think that that's the only way out? for them personally or do you think they can, can they continue to just to i guess keep increasing the money supply keep keep increasing credit is that sustainable i mean i think it's when you think it's like what does the new world order actually mean right and how much of an overthrow of the existing institutional structure is does that require and what's the process by which you would get there and i think a lot of it has to go through the dollar and the response of the US to Russia and SWIFT during Ukraine, that whole thing. And now Russia and China are motivated to get everyone off dollars, right? And they just went to Saudi and Saudi's now gonna price some oil and RMB. And so now you can buy some stuff in RMB. And the question is, can you get the money out 
you know, can Sri Lanka buy Saudi oil with our MV bank accounts without getting in trouble? We don't know. Like that's the thing. And so I, I bet on the West because the West is messy and the institutional structures work. And it's like, okay, who knows if FTX was a fraud or not right now, but we'll eventually we'll figure it out because of the like transparent process between all these like, you know, Twitter idiots like me and the government. And, you know, like we'll figure it out. It might take 50 years, but we'll figure it out. And I think that that's good for markets. And I think that when you, when you look at like Russia trying to get their money out of China for their oil and they're like, no, no, you can't spend it on this. You have to spend it on this. I'm like, ah, like that's not what a reserve currency sounds like. The reserve currency was pounds before it was dollars and it was, you know, guilders and francs and Spanish pesetas and dollars or whatever, because it was mobile, because it was the thing that would move around the easiest. And so to me, that has to be a Western thing, unless there's a huge conflict that upends the world order and Russia and China are the new top dogs and the UN's a totally different entity and the US is like out of the Pacific. Right. And so that's a that's a huge thing. That's a thing, you know, now I'm no longer the only person talking about this good because I'm just a macro guy, not a politics guy. <laughs> okay. But like to me, that's why they would not take the pain, basically. That's to me the reason. It's like if you actually are shooting to like upend the whole world order, Japan wasn't. So then you go, well, why would you play ball with the US? You're just gonna do the same thing you to all these like emerging countries where you like come in with your institutions and like mess us up, look at Russia. And it's like kind of right that, you know, like the US isn't totally like it's sometimes hostile to countries that are rising and attacking it or whatever the world order. And so I just think it, it comes down to currency basically in the end. If you look at all these long-term charts of data, what you notice most specifically is that you get just huge volatility of currency inflation, asset prices around conflict. That's the thing because it becomes existential for the government. The government does whatever it can with the currency to get out of that system. And then you have to be like Alexander Hamilton after the revolution that stupid to be like, okay, now we're going to pay everyone back. <laughs> you just don't do that usually. And so that means that you get all this inflation everyone gets burned out. They lose all their wealth. And then you start over again. And like, I think that that's possible in our lifetime. Yeah. I think like, that's why you should buy gold because it could be 20 years from now, 40 years from now. But like, you look at the, I mean, I don't want to be too conspiratorial or whatever, but like you look at the, like, I tweeted this, like you look at the projected number of planes that they're going to have versus what the U S is going to have. And you just project that out based on GDP. And it's like laughable that the U.S. could control Taiwan in like 2120. You know what I mean? Like 100 years from now. And so it's just a backward induction game of like, okay, how does that go? And can we negotiate a peaceful rise in the meantime? That's, you know, I'm, I'm probably ranting too much on this, but that's what I think. Yeah, it's, and it's interesting if we go back to what you mentioned about, I guess, after the revolution, how they want to look after people. You can say that's the same for World War II. You know, there was massive inflation after World War II, and it was exactly the same. It was this, well, you know, the introduction of the welfare state, especially throughout Europe, because of looking after the people who fought. Totally. And the West went and made everyone use dollars, right? And like, that's not a surprise. And if you look at the Asian co prosperity sphere, part of the reason Japan was able to build all this stuff was because they were invading countries and converting them into like weird local currencies that were pegged to the yen. So, current, it's always about currency in a fun way, because the currency is where it's like paper and power and money all come into one thing. And, you know, do you do you trade in euros or dollars or RMB or, or you know, rubles? Like it actually really matters in, in the real world. Yeah, definitely. So if we look at, you know, you mentioned before that I think you said that China has almost doubled the money supply that the US does. Is that just domestically or is that sort of international money supply as well? Oh, good question. I mean, no, no it's domestic money banks. Okay. So, you know, I think I don't have the numbers on the top of my head, but there's probably a lot of dollars outside that system that are non-dollars, but those are all also assets with those systems too. It's not just liabilities, right? There's a lot of assets that are dollarized. My asset is your liability, that kind of thing. 
I think the question and like the whole Belt and Road phenomena is like, okay, not that different from Western imperialism. And I'm not saying that in a good or bad way. I'm just saying in a neutral value, like, you know, positivist way or whatever, where it's like you trade with someone, you get them to use your currency. And then now that they're in your banking system, you have, it's a whole, it's a whole trade linkage. And so I think it's reasonable for China to do that. I mean, if I was China, if you were China, you would want to do that too. You would want to pay in your own currency. Like, especially if you make more stuff than anyone else in the world, it's pretty reasonable for you to want to do that. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Because that's what's always interesting to me. They've got like, I think it's the two currencies, isn't it? There's a, like the, the one which is domestic and the renminbi, which is sort of like international. So that's quite unique. So do you think that, and from my understanding, they'd have to, they haven't got as many, I guess, international methods for people to actually have the currency compared to the US. So there's no like, I guess, euro dollar system, which they would probably require to have it become a world currency as well they definitely would need a euro dollar system and they're like the, you know the cnh versus cny versus bank accounts here versus bank accounts there like people spend their whole career on that and it's really tough and it's like one of those things where you learn all these abstractions and like class or jobs or whatever on the bloomberg screen and then you go and like try to look at the data and you're like oh my god like this is a liability it's also an asset i'm getting it from this report this report says it's 30 percent more and you know i just know that there are literally some of the smartest people i know working on those problems and that was kind of the inspiration for anyway my company or whatever, which is make that alpha portable, right? Make that information so that somebody else can figure that out. Because to your question is like, there's no one answer to your question actually of like, is what's the offshore, offshore onshore? It just depends on how you count different things. And and imagine you know you give that answer to some, you know, the head of Elliot or whatever, and you're like, he asks you some question like, well, it really depends, boss. And like they don't want to hear that, right? They want they want to hear the answer. Uh, and so. I think that that, um, you know, it's that it's that kind of like just willing to say you don't know, really, which is the way out. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think that they definitely probably want other countries using RMB, but that you have to get the money out to do that, right? So you have to be able to allow people to like have bank accounts that they do whatever they want with. And like, just that's the big question. Okay, great. So if we go back to what we talk about the property market, you're saying that they're sort of trying to, they're going out of COVID now, uh, sort of uh, no COVID policy. And they're also trying to not inflate the property market. They're trying to keep it stable, I guess, to pre- prevent the uprisings from the people who would lose all, the, all their wealth, basically. Is that what you're saying? And, and there's a ton of inventory. There's just an insane amount of inventory that is has both been built and in the process of getting built. Mm-hmm. And if that inventory doesn't get built, it's it's obviously a loss because you bought a bunch of concrete and you made a thing with it and now you bulldoze the thing and it falls to the ground you're like well i guess i lost the money if you make it and finish it you can find someone to lend someone money to own it for a little while you can smooth that out and it's a lot easier to extend and pretend or say no it's still 10k rmb a, a square foot or whatever um that process right of smoothing out all the stuff that got built that that no longer is would have gotten finished if the funding market said, Hey, now I don't believe you anymore, you know, pay up. They're trying to paper that over by saying, we're going to finish all the stuff that's in process and roll the companies into, you know, sub companies and then do the the rework that basically happens in every financial system ever. And the weird thing is that, I, I mean, maybe I'm behind, but like, we still don't know what's going to happen with Evergrande paper. We still don't even know, like that's been two years almost now of this company's dead. They have a hundred billion dollars of cash outstanding or whatever. And nobody knows who's going to take what loss and like, oh, we'll just kick the can, kick the can. And then it's long for, and then it's Vanke, and then it's, you know, this, and then it's that. And then it's all these 
really big companies that are now trillions of dollars of assets that are like just in question. And if you look at the dollar assets, they're all trading at 10 cents or 30 cents or 70 cents or whatever. And the local ones are trading at 90 cents and 80 cents, but some of them are going down too. And so there's two questions that come about from this. One, like eventually someone has to take a loss, right? And that process will kick off recapitalizations of banks and, you know, banks eating other banks. That's a political process. It's not an easy process to do. So one, that that needs to happen. And two, if you stop building infinite amounts of buildings, what happens to GDP? Like it's not just going to go from six to five. It's going to go to two to one, maybe negative, because that huge part of your economy that was investing, building, investing, building, you're going to turn off. And from a growth perspective, growth is the change. Growth is the increase. So you're saying, look, we went up, 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 up. Now we're just going to do the same thing we did and stop doing it. Boom. That's deep. Like not only deflation, it's like recessionary. It's like contractionary. And then you have your 6%, 5% promise. So that's the question is, can you clean up the banks and bail out the debt holders and get the stuff fixed and keep your promises on income growth and let, like not have these like billionaire tycoons who siphoned out all this money get off scot-free? We had the same problem in 2008. So it's not a new problem. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating to see what happens so i guess if we go go to the west we've met, we've talked about before how you know tiling interest rates how that's impacting i guess um you know with the qt you could say the money supply in the us as well might not be changing as much as they think so what, what are your thoughts on you know you mentioned before as well that it might not be a perfect landing as the fed want what are your thoughts on sort of the potential for where, where that could ha- go and i guess what could happen to the economy in the next 6 12 20 24 months So there are two risks you have to really worry about if you're in the West and you're worried about rates and asset prices. One is just services inflation. You know, labor markets are not yet that tight. They're still pretty tight. They're not weak. They're not easy. So incomes are still growing. So you're going to have some organic inflation there. And then two, oil went up a bunch because of Ukraine. And then it went down a bunch because Ukraine was kind of, you know, put under some control and the Europeans got their enough energy to maybe make it through the winter. And now we're on the other end of that, where it's like, okay, maybe the Europeans need more energy for the winter, and maybe the conflict in Ukraine gets worse. And to me, that's just super bullish on energy, always, Um, sometimes even just in the short term. But that is inflationary, right? It's like that thing of gasoline goes from two to like six bucks or seven bucks or whatever the numbers are. And everybody feels that pain. Even when it goes back down to two, you remember that pain, you feel that pain. So we just got a big benefit from energy falling. That's deflationary. That's going to help the Fed. And that makes it look like, hey, maybe we'll get back to 2% soon. But if we have this income growth and we don't have a recession and China wakes up, you know, we're going to have 3% inflation and we're going to have 4% inflation for longer than people think. And, you know, the bond yield is trading out another 150 basis points of easing after the next year of tightening or the next six months of tightening, which is totally Goldilocks. So, you know, it's like there's a weird thing we're going to conflict drives and Oil, oil drives energy, energy drives inflation, inflation drives monetary policy, monetary policy drives bonds, bonds drive your stocks, right? And so it's all just a bet on that weird thing that we have no control over, right? Uh, which is fun. That's what makes it fun. Yeah, it's, it's crazy to think. So do you, so op- the opening up of China will have a big impact on, I guess, oil, you're, you're thinking, because I guess there's that, there's that thought that, um, you know, we've seen the worst of this energy price increase due to Ukraine and Russia. You, you think there could be sort of reversion in that trend? 
I think of it more than just oil, like just everything, like consumption. Like, you know, people are no longer sitting at home and not moving around. Every, you know, it's like that experience of during COVID in the West lockdowns, when you realize like how much of your daily like expense was just moving from place to place and eating lunch on the way to a meeting or whatever it is. And when you don't have that, you're like, oh man, I got like 30% of my income back. That's great. And so that's a huge amount of spend that just goes out of the economy. I think, you know, the how much, obviously China's a big marginal demand of oil. So that's going to affect oil in that, in that sense of like, if there's a ton of transportation demand, a ton of gasoline, ton of kerosene, all that stuff. Um, but I think of it way more, I mean, they also consume a ton of energy just in industrial processes as feedstock, as energy, as heating, you know, stuff that kind of heating industrial processes, a lot of mining, all that stuff. So long-winded way of saying like it's the engine, right? You start, you start that engine, the engine consumes, consumes, consumes. And then there's the question of how much of that consumption and it's less of energy than it is of, I don't know, iron probably is connected to building buildings. Right. And you'd think, okay, well, you need, you don't need as many buildings if people are moving around again to get GDP going. And that's energy, right? That's not, that's not iron. It's some copper, but it's, you know, mostly energy and food. Yeah, makes sense. So you mentioned before as well that you think potentially, uh, you know, buying gold and non US nominated currencies could be a potential, uh, you know, good, good invest or trade in the, next 12 months or whatever uh, are there any other sort of assets that you're th- thinking about as well that you're looking at closely at the moment that you think could perform well or poorly i think inflation like bonds are always interesting let me just pull up like what they're trading at because it's always you know you want to make sure you're yeah like you know tips are trading at 107 you get kind of some benefit if we get easier because interest rates go down and bonds go up and you get some benefit if people discount more inflation and these things go up relative to bonds. I still think bonds are not a great buy. Like I wouldn't buy bonds right now. I'd probably be selling bonds in the long term. Um, and so it's hard because that means you're bearish on duration. You're bearish on everything kind of in a weird way. Vol looks kind of cheap, but I think we can muddle along with stocks for a while. I'm not a really great stocks person. Um, and then dollar. Like I think that the that's kind of the, the hidden secret of this like gold in China or gold in dollars trade, which is just go long dollars. Like if you if you're worried about this tightening, it's just a dollar trade. And that, that also means cash, but it means, you know, get out of leverage that gets really hosed when the dollar goes up. Because if we get more energy, we're gonna get more tightening. Powell's gonna go to six if he has to. Bonds go to five five or whatever. And that's like, you know, murder for anything with like a 30 year duration on it or whatever. So just have some protection against that. And like it's kind of an abstract thing, but it's however you have it in your life. Some people have real estate, some people have a business, some people have a portfolio, some people trade crypto, whatever it is. But it's just like, they're not disconnected. Like when you see inflation, you should expect tightening. And that means, oh my God, asset prices. How can I get away from just getting totally hit over the head on that? Yeah. And I guess that would go to other emerging markets as well. They're going to be really impacted by the continued tightening of the Fed. Yeah. Anyone who's short dollars, right? And that's the classic EM thing. It's like, you can't issue currency in your own, you can't issue debt in your own currency, so you're in dollars. And then the Fed goes and tightens and all of a sudden dollars go 30, 40%, right? And and just people in the West, people in America in particular, just have no empathy for what it's like to be short dollars. Because <laughs> it's like literally the most painful thing in the universe because your interest rates are going up and, the, and your debt level is going up and all these things are going up at the same time. 
and you didn't do anything. You're just sitting there hanging out, running your business, and you happen to borrow in dollars, and now you're screwed. And like that is just such a horrific trade for the people on the other side of that. And it's such a privilege to be in the US and American, frankly. And Euro has a little bit of this, Japan has a little bit of this, you know, Swissy has this too. But like where when things get bad, people want your currency. And that means that if you have cash, everything gets cheaper. Yeah, interesting. And, and how would this impact uh, sort of your thoughts on, I guess, asset allocation? Because, you know, if you look at the past 20 years, it's been, or I guess you could say 14 years, it's been very good to be quite heavy in equities, you know, you could say private equity as well, that has really benefited. So what do you think is going to, this this is going to, how is this going to impact, I guess, uh, you know, allocation? Well, full disclosure, I used to raise a fund to try to help people, you know, hedge this stuff or whatever. And the reason I say that is because I was always up against implicitly, you know, I, I love this guy, he's a great investor, but the Dale Swinson model of Yale, which was like, get out of liquids and go into a liquid long-term private equity real estate venture. And he was right in 1980, for sure, because interest rates were way up here and probably right in 1990 and right in 2000. And then a bunch of, you know, really great investors, but kind of piled into that trade in the last 10 years. And how much of that was based on long duration, 0% interest rates, like a ton, right? And so that makes sense. That's what the Fed was trying to do, push people on the risk curve, get them into venture, get them into real estate, get them into private equity. But the issue is that, you know, you create leverage, you create a lot of dependency on rates in your portfolio. And so it's mostly just understanding that as that cycle unwinds, it's not just that interest rates are higher and asset prices are lower. It's that the people who are usually providing capital to those markets are actively in pain now and they can't make as much, you know, allocations and the process is harder and you're getting questions from their LPs and maybe their LPs are, you know, some regional university that like made too many promises and now they got to go talk to the bank about how they're going to fill all these like, you know, capital calls or whatever. And that just makes the business slower. And so I think to some extent that's good because you don't want everything in 50 year duration assets. Um, and I think it's good to get some focus on things that generate cash and returns for sure. But I also think it's an amazing, amazing privilege to live in that zero percent interest rate world. And there's a lot of arguments that we need a lower long-term interest rate anyway. And so maybe the market's right, Fed goes to four or five, but the long-term rate is like two five or something. And, and we get back to that world. I'm an entrepreneur. That'd be great for me, man. You know, equity asset prices going up by three X, I'll take it. Um, I just see that trade and then I go, oh man, you know, I'm also raising capital or whatever. That's going to be painful. Got to time that right. <laughs> you know, like watch out for those tightening cycles. Yeah. And you can say it also, like, I guess you could say PEs become a bit of a crowded trade as well. So it's not, you know, you might have to settle for <laughs> not as good investments. And that's really when you'll, you'll feel the pain when interest rates go up and they might not be able to survive for those companies. Yeah. And I'm not a PE guy. Like I don't have a lot of P alpha. I don't have any P alpha. Right. I just, I just know that they add leverage to companies. And then a lot of times you get benefits from not paying taxes and that's a pretty good trade. So it should work, especially if you can eke out operational efficiencies for sure. Um, but just the leverage, right? Leverage, leverage, leverage. As interest rates go up, if you're a study of a person who studies macro history, that's just the way the Fed works. Like higher interest rates kill the weak part of the financial system, then they ease, and then we start the process all over again. Yeah, it makes sense. So, Alex, thanks so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. So, uh, I guess my last question is what is one message you'd like people to take away from our conversation? Oh, I think just that. Um, you know, I can maybe be called a lateral thinker or whatever, but that there's a lot of things that people don't feel like they should have an opinion on, like macro or whatever. And I think that's kind of wrong, not because you should feel entitled to a macro opinion, but because you get affected by a macro opinion, meaning like 
what Jay Powell thinks is going to affect your home price. It's going to affect your, you know, how much your call your, your kids college, you know, fund and cost is at the same time or whatever, how much your pension fund. And so like, I should, I, th- I think we should talk more about this stuff, even if I'm not necessarily the best person to talk about this stuff, but just like, you know, help people like connect a little bit to like, Hey, monetary policy is a gigantic thing in your life that most people like there's one class on it maybe. And if they take economics or whatever, they like, go oh, monetary policy, but it's like, no, no, man, like, gigantic changes in people's lives. I was a Lehman guy, right? Like happen because of these things that are out of your control. So it pays to just like pay attention to them and like be curious about them and just then know that you're never going to be perfect at them because nothing's perfect, but it helps you when all of a sudden energy prices go up a ton and the Fed starts talking about tightening. You're not like six months behind that, even if you're just trying to refi your home, right? All these people, you know, who have these adjustable rate mortgages just learned what that means. And so they're, you know, those people have rate exposure. And I think there's a lot of economists in the nineties or whatever, who talked about helping people diversify this. Then we had the CDO financial crisis, <laughs> but long-term that makes sense. It's for people to be able to hedge out these big macro risks, right? Hedge out like a blow up in China, hedge out a big inflationary thing, hedge out a war in Ukraine. Like eventually like a hundred years from now, we should hope that we can do that stuff. So anyway, I just love that theme and, and we'll babble about it to whoever lets me. <laughs> Yeah, it makes sense. And one thing I've noticed is everyone thinks, and this might just be a bit of a generalization, that they're in a vacuum. So you could say the US think they're in a vacuum, you know, UK, I've been, you know, been between the UK and Australia, and they're all talking about the same thing and they're all blaming the same people. It's like, hang on, we live in this like very complex world where what happens on the other side of the world is literally the butterfly effect and it impacts everyone. Whereas I feel like that's really hard for some people to comprehend because it's not what they see every day. Totally. And Australians get that probably more than anyone, right? Because you're sitting between both and being like, oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Alex, thanks again for your time. So um, if anyone wants to find more about your work, I know you have a Substack. if you want to talk about more about that. And yeah, you've already mentioned Rose AI, but I'm not sure if you want to talk about that as well. Yeah. I think the easiest way to find me is is AB Campbell at Twitter um, or at AB Campbell on Twitter. And my Substack's link there. It's Campbell Ramble at Substack.com. Kind of a self joke because I'm a rambler sometimes. But you know, the intent is to be interesting and slightly self-deprecating. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, awesome. I'll put that in the description below. But Alex, thanks again. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe so you're notified when new podcasts are released. I hope you're leaving with some great value about investing, trading, and finance. See you on the next show.